0: We'll dive into God's word uh, together this morning. We're in week two of this rain down uh, series. Uh, And in this series, uh, we are asking God for revival. We're asking for God to rain down his presence. That's what, not just this series, we're in a season as a church where we are asking God for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We said last week, this is the deepest need of the church. For the Holy Spirit of God to pour out in a fresh way and bring revival. Listen, more than we need more people, more money, or more buildings, we need more of God. Amen? More of that outpouring of His Holy Spirit. We are asking Him to bring revival. When I say revival, we all have these images that come up or a preconceived idea of what that is, right? revival for me growing up meant a series of meetings where I had to go to church every night. Who, who would just go, that's what revival was for me? Every night, I had to be there every single night. And so sometimes they would be super mean and they would make it longer. They would just add nights to it. And I was like, we're still doing this same revival. Are we not revived yet? When does it happen? You know what I mean? And so, um, but that's not really what we mean by revival at all. What we mean by revival is for God to pour out, empower for his Holy Spirit to to rain down. So I want to give you kind of a working definition that we're going to take hold of um, about revival. It's this, revival is a sovereign act of Almighty God to give a special visitation of his presence that brings supernatural life and power to the church. Revival is a sovereign act of Almighty God. Here's what that means. Revival, if this is the outpouring of his presence, it's his sovereign will to give it or to withhold it. It's a sovereign act of Almighty God to give a special visitation of his presence. What does that mean? We know that God is everywhere all the time, right? He's omnipresent. What we're asking for in revival is an outpouring of power, an outpouring of presence, of a fresh manifestation of God pouring out that's going to do two things, bring supernatural life and power to the church. That's what we're asking God to do Because that's what the church needs. That's what New Beginnings needs. That's what the church in America needs. The church is in, I believe the church in America is in spiritual drought. We're in spiritual drought and we don't need a little sprinkle to get better. We need an absolute pouring out. We need a raining down of God and His Holy Spirit. You know, if you look around East Texas right now, you see all over things are starting to wake up, aren't they? Uh, the, the, the ground is starting to wake up. Things are starting to bloom. Your grass is starting to grow. Some of you are already mowing your grass, and I'm going to tell you something. I'm furious about it. I'm sick of it. Knock it off. You're making me look bad. And so, uh, but. All around, things are blooming, things are coming alive. The drought of winter and those things that looked dead for months, all of a sudden now, they're turning green. I don't know if you've noticed, there's been this beautiful yellow explosion of powder all over East Texas that's making our eyes swell shut and we can't think, right? That beautiful pollen. Um, uh, One of my sons and I, we got into his car, Jackson and his car had set for several days, and so we got in it, and he sits down. He and I, we're about to go uh, somewhere together, and we couldn't hardly see out the window. It was so much pollen on the window, so he turns on his windshield wipers and and the fluid to clean the window, and immediately it just looked like wet jiffy cornbread mix. It was just horrible. I was like, "Are are we making cupcakes? This is like cake batter on his windshield. It was so nasty, but there's But that's evidence of life, right? There's this explosion of life because in the spring we get this fresh outpouring of rain. There's the spring showers that come down and things start to come to life. That's what we're asking God to do. We're asking God to rain down and bring to life. And in this season we want to recognize, one, that we need this and we want to ask God to create the longing for it. J.I. Packer, when he was writing about revival, he was writing about uh, some thoughts that a man named Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones had, some things that he said about revival. And here's what J.I. Packer wrote. He said, the divine visitation that revives. So revival, he argued, cannot be precipitated by human efforts, even though our not caring about it and our not seeking it can effectively quench the spirit and block it. To acknowledge our present impotence and cry to God for such a visitation is, as he saw it, a supreme priority for the church today. But we shall not do this until we grasp the need for revival. And that will not happen until we see that nothing else can help us. Man, there's a desperation that has to stir up and be awakened in the hearts of God's people before we're going to see a revival because we have to have our eyes opened to the reality that nothing less than the outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God in power can help us. And until our eyes are open to that reality, we will not pursue revival. Which is, Church, this is why we must pray for God to open our eyes. I want you to hear me You can't open your own eyes. I wish it was different, but we can't open our own spiritual eyes. This is a work that God has to do. This is a Holy Spirit work, and it's why we have to pray and ask and beg until he does it. He opens our eyes. When Paul was standing before uh, King Agrippa in Acts 26, he was giving an account of how he came to faith in Jesus, and he said, literally, Jesus saved me, and he told me, I have saved you to send you out so that you would open their eyes. That their eyes would be open and that they would move and turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. We can't open our own spiritual eyes. You cannot revive your own heart any more than a dead man can raise himself back to life. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to pray and ask and seek because this is our only hope. It's the only hope for this church. For this room of believers, for the church in America, it is the only hope for pushing back against the darkness that is waging war right now. I wonder if you can see with me when you look around that our culture is deteriorating. Do you see it? You see the culture deteriorating? Listen, this isn't some political thing, right? Because I don't believe the culture stops deteriorating when we get a more conservative politician or a more liberal one. I think that's irrelevant. We don't need that. We need a move of God. Because what's deteriorating the culture has nothing to do with politics and everything to do with the soul and sin of man. And You're seeing the deterioration of the culture and by and large the church is either um, oblivious to it, powerless against it, or embracing it. God help us. God help us which means this, without revival, without this pouring down, without this spiritual awakening taking place in us individually as believers and collectively as the body of Christ, without the pouring out of God's presence, we will spiritually die. So we pray, we beg, we ask. And this is what Isaiah is dealing with in Isaiah 64. If you want to grab your Bible and go there, uh, Isaiah and Israel, that God's people are in a season of... Of spiritual drought. They're in a season of, of spiritual devastation and, and moral collapse. And what has led them to this place of, of spiritual devastation is sin in the people that has gone undealt with. Sin that has gone undealt with. And now their hearts have become hard toward God. God has begun to remove his power and his presence from them. They're beginning to be conquered by their enemies the sin that has gone undealt with in the people has become this barrier that is restraining God's presence from his people. That's what we're seeing in Isaiah 64. And I want to tell you, I believe the reason that the church and most Christians live powerless lives spiritually is because we walk in sin that goes undealt with. We just walk in sin that we don't don't deal with. what's happening here. And so what we need is to pray what revival, to pray what Isaiah prayed, which is for revival, to see the the, the true spiritual condition of ourselves and and the church and the nation and call out to God to move for us. And this is what Isaiah is praying in Isaiah 64. Look at these first three verses with me. Listen to the desire. We looked at these last week. We're just going to read through them and then we'll get to our verses for today. But I want you to be reminded of the desire he has for revival. He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. (laughs) God, would you tear the sky open and just pour out that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindled brushwood and fire caused water to boil. Why? To make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things, that we did not look for, you came down. And the mountains quaked at your presence. He is desired, God, would you come down? Would you do something? There's a question that I have, have stirred up in me, which is this very important question. What is giving Isaiah the confidence to pray a prayer like that? What's the, what's the foundation of his prayer for revival? This is a critical question for us to be able to answer and, and, and to get and to take hold of because we have to answer, what's the foundation of our prayer for revival? What's the foundation of us praying for God to move? What is going to be our confidence that God will hear us and move for us? We get the answer in verse 4. Look at this. He says, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, and no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. The foundation of Isaiah's prayer for revival, listen, is the character of God. It is who God is. The foundation of his prayer is not who he is. He doesn't reference who he is. He references who God is. He said, God, there's nobody like you. There's never been an eye that has seen or an ear that has heard a God like you. You are the God who desires to move on our behalf. You are the the God who desires to dwell and meet with his people. Isaiah's confidence is in the character of God. And it's that, that in God's character, in the nature of who he is, God is able and willing to move with power on behalf of his people. So I want you to hear me, church. Wherever you find yourself... On the spiritual spectrum this morning, you may be in a place where you're thinking, Gosh, Pastor, I have never been closer to God than I am right now. This is, this is the closest and the, the healthiest my relationship with God has ever been. That may be where you are. Or you may be on the other side where you're saying, I have never felt more distant from God than I do right now. May, maybe you're somewhere in between. But wherever you are this morning, I want you to hear me say, your God is not indifferent toward you. He's not. He is not neutral toward you, and he is not hesitant toward you. He desires you. And he desires for you and I to desire him and experience him and encounter him. As we pray for revival, we can pray with the confidence in the character of God and who he is as the God who desires us and the God who desires that we would desire him and know him. Which means when we pray, we're not trying to convince God or coerce God. We are just leaning in to the character of God and his love for us and his longing to pour himself out on us. That's the foundation of our prayer for revival. Prayer for God to move. But that same character, listen, that gives us that access and gives us that confidence, that same character also demands that we meet with him on his terms. The same character demands that we meet with God on his terms. What do I mean by that? I mean, I hope that my children know and that I've, I've loved them and, and, and fathered them in such a way that they know they can always come to me no matter what they need or what's going on and that they can ask me for anything. I really hope they know. I know that you want that for your children, that we want, we want our children to know they can ask us for anything and they can come to us no matter what. But listen, they can't just come to me any old way, right? Uh, growing up, I knew I could go to my mother with anything, no matter what it was, and I could ask anything of her. But I didn't go making demands of Peggy Darby because that country girl would rise up and she would set that correct in a hurry, Right? <laughs> She wasn't having that. And I want my children to know they can't ask, but they can't come to me demanding. They can't come to me being dismissive, being disrespectful, right? And in the same way, we can't approach God with demands. We approach God in humility. We approach God uh, yielded. The same character of God that gives us access and becomes the foundation of our prayer, that same character of holiness And righteousness demands that we come to him on his terms. Well, what are those? What does that mean? Well, notice the language he uses in verse 4 and 5. He said, God, you you act for those who wait for you. Those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. You see three postures right there. We're going to try to touch on these very quickly. Three postures that we must assume and where we need to position our life um, if God is going to meet us and act on our behalf. So let's touch these real quick. Here's this The blessing of God's presence and power are accessible to those who first humbly wait for Him. He says, You act for those who wait for Him. Well, what does it mean to wait for the Lord? We hate waiting, right? (laughs) We are the most impatient people. I get jittery, fidgety, and frustrated if two minutes after I've sat down, there isn't a basket of chips and salsa directly in front of my face, right? I start getting antsy because I don't like waiting. What does it mean to wait for the Lord? Waiting for the Lord means that we we seek Him patiently and we trust Him confidently and we stay in this posture of humility until He moves. Waiting for the Lord means we seek him patiently and we trust him confidently and we stay in that posture of humility until he moves. Well, that's hard because how many of you like me would have to acknowledge there have been things you've wanted to pray for, but when you prayed for it once and God didn't move, you just moved on from it. Anybody? Right? Just me? That felt good. Thank you. Um, We're impatient in that praying. But Isaiah said, no, you act for those who are willing to wait for you, to humble themselves before you, to sit with confident expectation that the Lord will hear and he will pour out. Waiting is not passive. Waiting is very active. It is actively yielding ourselves, actively humbling ourselves, actively seeking, actively trusting, and actively expecting. And this is why prayer is absolutely essential to our lives. We are calling on the name of the Lord, seeking Him, and we do this until He moves. That's the labor of prayer, right? It says, I'm going to settle in here and I'm going to stay here until God lifts me up from here and pours himself out on me. Humbly wait for him. Here's a second posture, I think. The blessing of God's presence and power accessible to those who are joyfully obedient to him. Joyfully obedient to him. It said, You meet with him who joyfully works. Righteousness. Well, what does it mean to work righteousness? I think it's simply to to do what pleases the Lord. Working righteousness means I'm going to do what pleases the Lord. God moves on behalf of those who live in submission and obedience to Him. That word works, it's a the, the tense of that indicates an ongoing action. It's a way of life. It's this posture of living a life in obedience. Doing those things that please the Lord. But listen, he gets to the heart of the matter. It isn't just about what we do, he gets to the motive of it because he said, You meet with him who joyfully, with joy in their heart, work righteousness. What does that mean? It means we don't just conform begrudgingly to God's demands it means that we don't look at God's righteous standard as some sort of joyless burden, and we don't view God's commands for our life as if they are taking something from us. Man, I have related to God's standard for my life that way, that his standard for my life is a burden, and it feels like it's just keeping from me what I really want. And if you're relating to God in that way this morning, again, got to be humble, got to be honest. If that's true, hear me say, you, like me, we need revival. Because God's righteous standard is not a burden It is a joy when we walk in it. Why? Because it is our way of joyfully receiving the reality that we see God's way as the best way. And when we walk in His way, we find joy that we can't find in anything else, no matter how far we go into the well or how many times we drink from it. We joyfully work right. We joyfully embrace His way. Why? Because he joyfully embraced the burden and ran to us when he weighed, when he carried the burden of our sin. In his joy, it was his joy. It says, for the joy that was set before Jesus Christ, he endured the cross. Why? So that he could have relationship with you and with me, which means now it is our joy to grab that righteous standard and see it as the deepest satisfaction that I will ever find. Joyfully works righteousness. Is it your joy to obey the Lord? Is it your joy to do that? There's two postures. blessing of God's presence and power are accessible to those who humbly wait for Him, are joyfully obedient to Him. Here's the last thing. Who actively delight in Him. Who actively delight in Him. He says you meet with Him. You meet with those who remember you in your ways. This isn't just a reference, reference to remembering the ways of the Lord, but remembering the Lord himself. It's a picture of one who treasures the Lord or delights in the Lord. This is the life that actively enjoys the person of God and loves to honor him because of who he is. It's just delighting in God. Is God your delight? Do you delight in Jesus? Does it make you glad to belong to him? Is your relationship with him, do you relate to him in such a way that it gives you joy and it gives you life and it makes you glad? Actively delighting. And we have a great staff here and a great team and I consider each one of them a a close personal friend. I love them very much. I wanna tell you, the more that I get to know them, the more that I discover about them, the more that I get past what they do for the church and just get to know who they are and their spouses and their children and get to know them, the more delight I have in my friendship with them. I just have more delight in the friendship. Why? Because intimacy and delight are connected to one another. And the more that you are intimate with God, the more that you discover who he is, listen, the more you want to know, the more you want to delight, the more you want to feel him and experience him and worship him and converse with him and find more of him. Actively delighting in. This is being proactive to delight in Jesus and in our relationship with God. He he has made us relational beings, hasn't he? We're created as people who desire relationship, why? Because we're made in his image, which means he's a relational being. So here's what that means for you, church. It means he desires that time with you. He desires to be with you, to have that intimacy. He desires to converse with you and to journey with you as your father and your friend. So think about this. God's character is that he meets with and acts on behalf of those whose life is postured in this way, humbly waiting, joyfully obeying, and actively delighting in him. That's how he describes the life where his presence and his power are experienced. Here's the problem for Israel, and here's the problem for many of us. That does not describe the spiritual posture they were in. And for many of us, it does not describe the spiritual posture we're in. Look, at he, look how Isaiah begins to describe the spiritual condition of the people. Look at the second part of verse five. He says, "Behold, you were angry and we sinned. and in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved?" Isaiah he's starting to get honest about where they are. He said, "We've sinned, and we have remained in our sin." A very long time. God, we haven't waited for you. We haven't joyfully obeyed you. We aren't delighting in your ways. In fact, we have willfully walked in defiance toward you, knowing that it would anger you and still having no regard for you. That's what he's saying. It, he's, he's pointing out this rebellious indifference toward the Lord. And I got to tell you, this is one of the great fears over my own soul, my own heart, and for each of us in this church. That we would have sin in our life that goes undealt with to the point where we can acknowledge it doesn't please the Lord, and yet we just remain indifferent to it. If there's sin in your life that you have become indifferent to, hear me say, you. Need revival, and so do I. Do you believe that? There's got to be a receiving of that as a truth. There's got to be this thing where you go, Yeah, I see that. If I'm comfortable in my sin, I need revival. And that's what Isaiah is pointing out. We've been in sin a long time. Why? Because we got comfortable with it. We just settled into it. And it 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 birthed this spiritual indifference toward the Lord. And he asked this question. Shall we be saved? Is there hope for salvation? In that question is actually a declaration. The declaration is this. If we stay in this condition, there is no hope for us. If we stay here, there's no hope. He begins to paint this picture of the nature of their sin and the effects it is having on them. Look at verse 6. He says, we have all become like one, who is unclean. That word unclean is actually the word they would use to describe a leper. Someone who had leprosy. When they looked at someone with leprosy, it wasn't just that they, were, they considered them physically unclean. They actually considered them spiritually unclean. That somehow there was a spiritual issue in their life and God had judged them in such a way that they were struck with leprosy which made them unfit for fellowship with God and unfit for fellowship with God's people. And that's the word Isaiah uses to say, we have all become unclean. We're all spiritual lepers. That's what he's saying. We're all spiritual lepers. And he says, and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment saying even what we consider to be in our favor, even our righteous acts are polluted by our sin. Our righteousness is soiled by our unrepentant sin and the sins of those around us that we tolerate. Boy, I've had to ask myself, what sins in my own life and in the life of those around me have I simply begun to tolerate? Isaiah is saying, God, we're in such a poor spiritual condition that even our good is corrupt. He says, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Man, this is a picture of decay. Decay that is leading to, that is ending in death. He says, spiritually, we're like a dried up leaf that is swept away by the wind. That's what sin does. It dries you spiritually. It dries your spiritual energy and your desire for the Lord. It dries it up, and then it begins to blow you places you never wanted to go. Who else in this room can uh, acknowledge the truth that Sin undealt with moves you places you never wanted to go. So I did, this, the psalmist in Psalm one says, "The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away, and they will not stand in the judgment." Sin always and only moves one direction. We never get better at sinning; it only gets worse. It only moves in one direction. And you guys have heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating and letting our soul try to take hold of it and bring it in and and just perceive it as truth, which is this. Always, every time, without exception, sin will take you further than you want to go. Always, every time, without exception, sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And always, every time, without exception, Sin will cost you more than you want to pay. This is what Isaiah is saying. We have dried up and we have been blown away. And now we're somewhere we never meant to be or wanted to be. But here we are far from God. So he's seeing this true state of God's people and he's acknowledging why it is that they need revival so desperately because they are being the spiritual life is being drained out of them in my own heart i got to tell you i don't need to be delivered from my enemies i need to be delivered from myself anybody else I don't need to be delivered from somebody who stands against me. I need to be delivered from me standing against me and hindering me. And my I need to be delivered from myself. But until we see the deadly effects of sin, what it is doing, what it is causing, how it is separating, we're not going to have revival because we're not going to recognize our need for it. How many of you have gone to a doctor's visit and the doctor told you something you really didn't want to hear? Buddy, Go in. You really just wanted the doctor to say, hey, I want to tell you something. You're my favorite patient. You're super awesome. And uh, enjoy bacon and fried chicken the rest of your life. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be so good. Go in peace, right? How many, <laughs> how many of you? I love that doctor, right? That's not the guy who takes care of me. My buddy's in here. He helps take care of me, Matt. And he never once has he said that to me, as a matter of fact. Um... However, I have had doctors in the past, medical professionals in the past, who look at me and go, hey, there's some issues here. You need, to get some, you need to get some weight off your body. You need to change some of the things that you're eating because I want to tell you what this is doing to you, and you may not know it. It's elevating your blood pressure. It's hardening your arteries. It's actually taking days off the end of your life. What Isaiah is seeing is what their sin is doing. It's killing them spiritually. And he is asking that God would move. He says, there is no one who calls, verse 7, there's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you. He's saying, God, we're spiritually asleep. We're spiritually asleep. We don't even recognize that we need to wake up. He's saying this is a time for earnest prayer, desperate prayer, but we're sound asleep. We should be desperately trying to take hold of you, but we're indifferent, church. Here's why. Because that's what sin does. It just lulls you to sleep. And the sin that bothered you yesterday doesn't bother you today. Why? Because it's putting you to sleep. And Isaiah said, God, you need." there's none of us who are being roused, awakened, stirred, ignited to come and take hold of you. And if that's you, listen. that's an indicator that we need revival. Ray Ortland said this, when is revival necessary? When prayer has lost its power and other ways of coping seem more helpful. When sleepy Christians go through the motions without rousing themselves to lay hold of God, revival is necessary. Again, I... As we walk through this, I know this is heavy teaching, but as we walk through it, I want you to ask yourself, is that me? Do I cope with my problems? Do I cope with the issues in my life? Do I cope with my struggles in other ways because I am finding them more helpful than intimacy and prayer with God? If so, that's an indicator. We need revival. Isaiah is saying, God, we've become indifferent to you. We've become indifferent to your name, indifferent to his presence. And our indifference to God is a declaration to God that he is unwanted. Look at what he says. For you have hidden your face from us. And you have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Anytime you see that, you've hidden your face. That's just a picture of a separation. God, we've been separated from your presence. We're separated from God. There's a separation between us and you because of our sin. And he said, you've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. God, you've given us over to our sin, and it is destroying us. I want you to hear me. And I want me to hear me. The pet sins that we keep in our life, we are not managing. We are being managed by them. Are you with me? The pet hidden sins that we have are not little things that we can manage. They are the very things that are destroying our spiritual lives, putting out the fire of the Holy Spirit in our life. And until we get honest about them, Coming clean before the Lord, we will not get to see His power and His work in our lives and in our church. Bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, gossip, adultery, fornication, pornography, pride. Resentment, lying, gossip, the list just goes on and on. These are all areas that if we don't address, they will continue to just repel the presence of God. We can't see a genuine move of God until we get honest about these things. But here's what we know. Honesty requires humility. Requires humility. Humbling ourselves. It requires saying, God, I'm just going to open, I'm going to put my pride out here, and I'm going to ask you to put it to death. Pride says I'm doing okay as long as I measure myself against you. Doing all right. I got some problems, but they got some worse ones. Doing okay. Humility says, God, I need you to kill that pride so I can see myself for who I really am and my true need for you would be stirred up. Dell Phezenfeld Jr. said this, the greatest cost of revival may be our pride. Are we willing to agree with God about everything he reveals to be contrary to his way? Are we ready to surrender all of our secret hidden sins and come to the cross in brokenness, repentance, repentance, And humility? Are we willing to stop transferring the blame for our problems and take personal responsibility for our own failures? What do we do now? What do we do? What's the solution? The solution is a return to holiness. It is it 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 is in repentance and returning to God. Sin repels the presence of God. But church, hear me. Holiness, repentance, confession, honesty. These are the things that invite the presence of God. They kick the door open for God to pour out. And this is, this is the prayer Isaiah's praying. Look at what he says next. But now, O Lord... So he's, he's going through all this brokenness, acknowledging sin, and look where he lands. But now, O oh Lord, you are, you, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. So be not so terribly angry, O oh Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. God, look, we're, we are all your people. Isaiah is recognizing that it's the grace and mercy of God that is his only hope. He's not making a case for himself. He isn't making a case for the people. He doesn't speak a word in his own defense. He just cries out for mercy. He just runs to the love of God, runs to the, to the grace of God. He runs into the character and nature of God. This is not some prayer saying, God, we're sorry. Now let's move on and nothing really change. I've had enough of those prayers in my life. How many times have you, like me, prayed to prayer, God, I'm really sorry for that. Could we just move on, but then nothing really changed? That's not one of these prayers. This is a prayer of repentance, and it has purpose, and the purpose is to return to God, which is why he confesses. He begins with repentance. He's already confessed. He's already getting honest. Repentance begins with confession. Confession is just agreeing with God. God, you're pointing out a thing in my life that does not please you. I agree with you that it exists and it is destroying me and I'm repenting from it. That's confession. It's an acknowledgement. And repentance leads to full submission. Here's what he says. We are the clay and you are our potter. What a a beautiful picture. Isaiah is saying, we return to you. We submit to you. You have control. We want to become who you want us to be. I'm glad to yield up myself to surrender every plan, every dream, and every effort I have in order to become what you want me to be. Why? Because the clay never tells the potter what the clay wants to be. The clay simply says, whatever you create me to be, desire for me to be, I'm glad to yield and submit and let you burn out the impurities and put me in the kiln of your holiness so that I can be what you've designed for me to be. You're the potter. All all of this, all, uh, all of this, this humbly waiting for the Lord, joyful in obedience, delighting in him, repentance, confession, waiting for the Lord, being honest about our sin, all of that is predicated on the grace of God. It's not predicated on your merit. You can't do that and come to God this way because there's something in you that merits that. It is the grace of God, and it is only the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ. If you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, I want you to hear me. The presence and the power of God and true joy and and deep delight and satisfaction is yours, but it is only yours in Christ Jesus. And all the other things that you are pursuing to try to fix the brokenness in your life, you know where they're taking you? To more brokenness, to more death. But Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, that you might be Refreshed, fulfilled, have a life that is abundant, free. Have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? It's his work that does this. So here's how how we're going to end. I want you to just ask yourself some questions with me. One is... Am I running from the Lord? Is there any area of my life that I am running from God? Is sin, is there some secret pet sin that you continue to nurse, but God is opening your eyes to see that it is eating you alive? Is there resistance in your life to a fresh move of God? Do you need a fresh move of God? Is there an area in your life where you need God to bring breakthrough? There are strongholds of sin and you need him to bring breakthrough. If that's you, you need revival, so do I. It can start right now. I want us to take this journey together. I want us to to wade out into the pool of God's grace and his mercy together. No defense for ourselves, just fully dependent on him. God, we will wait until you move. But if what I get in waiting for you is freedom from the things that I am realizing I can't fix and they're just killing me, then you are worth waiting for. And I will wait for you. Joyful. Delighting. Trusting. And expecting. So I'm gonna pray. And Philip and the team are going to lead us in worship. And listen, as they do, if you need to make Jesus the Lord of your life, if you can just identify, I am stuck in cycles of sin and I have never been born again, then the moment he starts singing, I want you to step out, come take me or will someone else by the hand and go, I just need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to receive that grace and be born again. Maybe this is a time of confession where you're just going to come and maybe ask for prayer. You just need somebody to stand with you and you need to say, there are strongholds in my life and I need to be set free. I need a fresh move of God. Maybe you just need to come to the altar and just pray. God, stir up in me a longing. I don't want to feel dead toward you. Open my eyes and stir that up. What I would ask you not to do is to sit passive. The Holy Spirit is wanting to move. God is wanting to pour out. How do we respond to that? Father, I pray that for the next few minutes, you would just move among us. We just want to yield to you, Lord. We want to surrender to you, Lord, and say however you want to move, our answer is yes. Call us out. Call us up. In Jesus' name.